I'm Sheila Hamilton. Welcome back to Beyond Well. This is a place where we talk about the interior. And some of the topics that we take on are things that we cope with as human beings every single day. Depression, anxiety, and one in three people suffer from suicidal ideation. Today, I'd like you to meet a young woman whom I met after learning that she also lost her husband to suicide. Leslie Abraham joins us today on Beyond Well to talk about being a suicide loss survivor and all of the things she also wishes she'd known when her husband fell ill. I want to frame um, suicide in the way that I've heard you frame it before, um, Brian, where you've talked about for many people, it's experiential avoidance. It's the ultimate inability to deal with what's happening in your life. Yeah. It's a solution to a perceived problem. Uh, I don't like the way, I don't, I don't like what I'm experiencing. I don't like how I'm feeling and I'm looking for a way to not have that experience, to not have that feeling anymore. And the ultimate way to do that is to cease all feelings and all experiences. Right. And so many people do it in different ways, numbing out with food or drugs Mm -hmm. or alcohol. Um, What is the, the first, the thought process of how suicide actually becomes an option? I, I suspect that the process is, is different for different people, but I think the reality actually is that, that, being in pain is universal and actually wanting to escape pain is pretty universal and actually having some consideration about, I can't think of another way to solve this problem and it needs to be solved. It is a problem and it needs to be solved. And I would consider maybe taking my life. That's actually very common. Uh, I think the, the data on that tells us that one in three people have had a point in their life where they've considered uh, ending their life as a way to escape their pain. And, you know, one in three, you know, you just count off. There's four of us in the room, you know, so you're either a three or you're sitting next to one pretty much. Mm. Um, so I think it's a, it's actually very common. Leslie, mm-hmm. talk to me about um, the history of, of, first of all, I always like to, be, because suicide is so in some ways so sensational and people focus on the act of dying rather than their life. Tell me about your husband, who he was and, and what, what attracted you to him? Well, we actually grew up together. I knew him from the time I was 10. And so, you know, we grew up in the same church and we went to middle school and high school together. So, you know, it was kind of an admiration from afar. Our families were friends and we, we would do stuff together as families. And, you know, I always enjoyed hanging out with him. Um, but he was this guy who was a friend to everyone. I mean, everybody loved him. Um, he did not discriminate who he hung out with, you know, who he played basketball with, basically anybody, you know, that would come and have a good time with him. So I loved that about him. And uh, we hung out a little bit in high school, and then not until actually my senior year we started dating. Uh, so I was 17, and we dated for about four years, and then you know, helped each other get through college and, and we ended up getting married. Wow. So he was your first love. Really? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. 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 So we were, um, you know, we grew up together. I mean, we, we honestly formed this life, built this life together. Um, and you know, I think back to the book, uh, Cheryl Sandberg wrote option B and we built this option A, mm-hmm. you know, and so now I'm in option B. And I love the quote. <laughs> she goes, 
something, you know, when, when option A doesn't work out, kick the shit out of option B. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what you're doing. Not. That's what you're doing, kicking the shit out of yeah. option B. Yeah. You were six months pregnant when he started not sleeping. Right. What was the, what were the stressors that were going on in his life that made you think, oh, he, he he's under, this is not going so well. He's not the guy I grew up with. Right, exactly. Well, he had, you know, some stress at work. There was stuff going on and, and uh, you know, in the family and things. And so he did just go for a routine checkup and uh, was misdiagnosed and put on a medication that then um, made it so that he couldn't sleep. And it just went from there. And so, you know, we went back and forth to primary care, um, switching off and on medications. And it just, you know, slowly and gradually and then quicker and quicker just spun out of control. You know, what started as kind of a minor problem turned into this beast of a monster. Um, the the difficulty for me as a person who's researched this now and had the exact same experience where my late husband was having a lot of stress. He ended up being misdiagnosed by a friend, a doctor. He didn't even see a real doctor. A friend just gave him antidepressants. And he went in, into this state of akathisia where he was skin crawling, oh, could not yeah. sleep. It's the kind of um, really mm. tremendously psychic, like monster pain, mm. apparently. Mm. Um, and he was going to do anything to to mm-hmm. try to get out of that. And since then, I've written a couple of articles for BP Mag- Magazine, and I receive hundreds of responses from people who have had this very same thing mm-hmm. where they're misdiagnosed they're not sleeping they're having this skin crawling i can't stand where i am mm-hmm. i've got to get out of this and this is when the suicide takes place is mm-hmm. this something that you've heard of before jenna well certainly uh akathisia and akinesia which are two side effects you can get from lots of different medications that we use for things are i used to describe them um, when I taught to my students as it would be Dante's inner circle of hell. Mm. Like if you can imagine this tremendous feeling of internal restlessness and just like your skin is crawling. And then when that is combined with akinesia, this inability to initiate movement, it just sounds like absolute torture. Um, And you can sort of see how the mind could very quickly go to, oh, my God, I can't, I can't, I can't take this. And then, um, Leslie, when you were talking about this difficulty sleeping, boy, if there is, when I'm seeing somebody who is in a really dark place, two of the very first things we try and tackle are, are you sleeping and are you eating? Because there is not a whole lot that we can do to change kind of our internal experience of of suffering super quickly. Like there are things we can do, but it takes some time. But the things about fueling your body and being able to find ways to sleep are just absolutely essential. Mm -hmm. Absolutely essential. Yeah. 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 Nothing, nothing else can really follow until those two exactly. things go exactly. into place. Exactly. I yeah. found it fascinating that the first thing that they did in psychiatric care was just put him to sleep. Sure. I think they yeah. he slept for like four days. Sure. They just yeah. drugged him to the point where yeah. he didn't sleep. Was yeah. your husband ever committed to psychiatric care? He was. And how did it go? Um, not very well. And they did. That's what we wanted. Is what happened to your husband? We wanted them to just put him to sleep, and but for some reason. 
that wasn't the route they took. So they they tried different medications, did different tests, and and um, you know it just it, the system failed. I mean, they it was just trial and error, and there was never a solution. Were you visiting every day and getting that uh, increasingly doomed sense in your heart that it this was not going well, and yet there's this protocol for how many days they're supposed to be in, mm-hmm. and then, boom, you're out, and there's no follow-up, and you don't mm-hmm. actually have an appointment with a primary care doctor, I mean, with a, a therapist or a psychologist. Like, there's this idea that the inpatient is going to stabilize you, and in fact, it often doesn't. And then you're released, and in fact, there's no follow-up in place. Yeah. And in fact, statistically, that's the time most often when people die by suicide right. is in the first day or two after being released from psychiatric care. And I, I'm not surprised by that because it, it, you almost feel like, okay, going in, okay, there's hope. They're gonna, they're gonna find something. They're gonna, you know, find some solution. So then, when he was released, we were just more hopeless because mm-hmm. another you know, therapy, another something couldn't help. Yeah, that no. that's an experience I have with um, clients I work with. Like very often I'll have clients who will so badly want to go into an inpatient um, unit because their hope is, oh, there's going to be the answer there. Mm-hmm. And our our system is just not set up that way. Like inpatient units these days are mainly about how do we get this person to not kill themselves for the time being? Mm. It is not set up in a way to help the person. I mean, the the social workers, they're primarily social workers who are working in these inpatient units, do an amazing job of trying to get people set up with resources once they get um, released Um and yet so many people fall through the cracks and and then you're exactly right. People have uh, like I've had clients come out and, and they felt like that was their last best chance. Mm-hmm. And then they feel even worse when they come out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's perceived as a higher level of care, not just in intensity, but like it's a higher level of care. Like it will give me more help right. than an outpatient therapist or right. some other thing that I might be able to do. And so mm-hmm. when you come out having simply stabilized or transitioned to different medication right. and that's it, then yeah. it's like, well, what else is there? We did the inpatient thing. Right. Like yeah. we went all the way to the top mm-hmm. and it didn't help. And and like you said, Jenna, that's not really uh, that's not really what inpatient care is about these days. Yeah. Leslie, were you, um, was your husband uh, verbalizing any of his thoughts of suicide at that point? Was he talking to you about, I, I, can't, I have to end this or I'm, I can't do this anymore? Yeah, he would go back and forth and it was almost like a conversation with himself. He got in this kind of obsessive cyclical thinking mm-hmm. and he would say, I can't live anymore. You know, he wanted me to be able to live a normal life. And, and then he would say, but I don't want to die. You know, if I can just get better. I'll be the happiest man in the world, you know, and if I can just go back to work and, and be like everybody else. And so it, he kind of would get on that wheel of, I can't do this anymore, but I want to live, you know. And, mm-hmm. you know, so ultimately it was completely devastating when he did because I, I thought that, you know, he had fought for so long, six months. I thought, surely something's going to 
breakthrough breakthrough mm-hmm. and yeah because he's fighting so hard I remember Brian you talking to me because I couldn't understand that um that that suicidal thinking you described it as a racetrack with no off ramps mm-hmm. and I was like wow that's such a great visual image mm-hmm. for me that ideation is this like looping around the act becomes very very important the act mm-hmm. is sort of the thing the release of pain right or the mm-hmm. thought that it's going to be mm-hmm. somehow the be all end all of course mm-hmm. <laughs> that's how illogical the thinking is mm-hmm. but but Brian said something so fascinating in our last episode talking about the question that he asks his patients who are suicidal and I want you to to share that with Leslie if you would yeah it's 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 this idea, if I, if I had a wand, if I had a magic wand, if I could grant you a wish, what would it be? And my my observation was, I don't think I've ever had anybody say, I, I'd like you to kill me. Mm-hmm. Right? It, it, mm-hmm. That is not, it's not so much that I want to die, it's that I don't want to be living the way that I'm living. And I can't seem to get a hold of the idea of living a different way than I'm doing right now or find a way to carry my experience such that I can still do other things that it's like, yeah, I don't want to die, but I don't want to do this. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. If you could have um, talked to him, I mean, one of the things that I keep thinking of is if our family could have been introduced to people who suffer from anxiety and depression, who were going through financial stress, who weren't sleeping, but who were still living Mm -hmm. and who decided that, that there was a, there was a method for them to go forward if in the hospital somebody had said, hey, I have this diagnosis or whatever you want to call it, I'm still not even sure after nine different diagnoses that we got the right diagnosis. Mm-hmm. I think it was just human suffering that got out of control. Uh, I mm-hmm. do believe that if they could have presented to us peer counselors or people who'd gone through a really tough time before and said, hey, dude, I have been there. I know it. And you're going you're gonna to get through this. Yeah. Did you have any examples of people who were providing hope for you? No, we didn't. And, you know, part of that was we kept this really close behind closed doors because, um, you know, the way we were raised and just our own pride, we didn't want people knowing what he was Mm -hmm. going through. There was just a lot of shame involved in it. Mm -hmm. And we thought, oh, you know, we're better basically than mental illness. This, this. so. I was wondering about that because yeah. one of the things that you said he was telling you was uh, he would cycle back and forth between I I I don't want to keep going I can't do this and I just want to be normal I just mm-hmm. want to be like everybody else and I think there's this and it ties into something Sheila just said right about um, this is just human suffering that got out of control I, I there's an isolation in that that I hear that. This private experience that I have of pain is completely foreign uh, to everybody else's experience. Everyone else is like rainbows and unicorns, Mm -hmm. and I'm in pain, and I just wish I could be as happy as everyone else is, as though we all don't carry burdens and struggles and pain. Mm. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And that's... it. You know that piece about shame, especially when it comes when it comes to psychological suffering in general, but especially around suicide, is just so pervasive. Like Brian, if you're thinking about kind of the stat you you um, talked about at the beginning, one in three adults, you know, will acknowledge having seriously and persistently thought about ending their lives. Like 
for the listeners, are you having that conversation with one in three of your friends? Right. Like, right. probably Oddly, you're Oddly, I am. <laughs> well, you probably are, <laughs> Sheila. <laughs> They're all like, oh, here she comes again. Here she comes. Carrying no, the big suicide prevention bag. Right. right. Like, are, are, have you, do you know the, right. like, one in three right. of your friends? Have they come and talked to you right. about it? And we don't, we don't talk about these and things. We don't talk about the suicidality, but we don't talk about the pain that underlies it. That's My right. experience That's right. is yes. people will say, yes. I don't want anyone to know i don't want anyone to know about how hard things are for yes. me right. i don't want anybody yes. to know about this pain that i experience and at the same time i think everybody desperately wants to and that person probably will acknowledge i just want to be seen yeah, yeah. i just mm-hmm. want somebody mm-hmm. to see me mm-hmm. and i think one of the things that happens when somebody shows up in your life who does admit to like man i'm in a really really dark place and i'm having some really dark thoughts that Oftentimes, very understandably, our response can be, oh, God, I'm so sorry to hear that. That's so scary. Are you going to be okay? Are you all right? As though it's like, what you just told me is really, really hard for me to hear. Tell me that you're going to be okay. Yeah, 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 I'm okay. Mm -hmm. I'm not thinking that way anymore. Great, Mm -hmm. good. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Period, end of paragraph. As opposed to... Like, no, I actually want to hear more about that. Right. Mm-hmm. Not not so much like I want to hear about all of the ways in which you think about killing yourself, but I want to hear about the the struggle that you're having mm-hmm. in your life. Mm-hmm. Like that's okay. Not only is it okay, acceptable, but it's that's just that's human and me too. And mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? like there's yeah. just yeah. In this reporting effort, um, I'm going to be abiding by kind of safe guidelines, which is we're not going to be talking about method or means, but I do think it's really important for people to understand that if you begin to see a loved one who's experiencing the kind of things we've been talking about that, maybe they're talking about suicide, maybe they're not sleeping, you've noticed eating changes, you've noticed the kind of uh, lack of interest in the things that they used to love before and they're no longer interested, remove the damn guns from your home. Yeah, You know, it, yeah. it, it's so, it's like yeah. the conversation we have around gun control is so ridiculous when it comes to suicidal people. Yeah, I just don't think there's any way we should still be arguing about the idea of get the weapons out of their sight because there's already an obsession with an easy way to end it. Mm-hmm. I, read right? recent, I read a recent statistic that said um, at least among white Americans, for every, um, for every homicide with a gun, there are six suicides. Yeah, right. And so I don't know, Leslie, yeah. if, if you had the same experience where – my late husband, who abhorred guns, wouldn't go even deer hunting because he was such a an empath, ended up becoming obsessed with guns. Right. Yeah. Uh, we were the same way. No guns in our house, no BB guns. You know, we just, um, there was no need for us to have one in our home. And both, we both were educators and just felt that, you know, it wasn't right. <laughs> we There was no reason for us to have it. So he actually did go out without me knowing and purchased a gun. And uh, it was probably hidden somewhere in the house or, yeah, uh-huh. I don't know. Yeah. It's important um, to, to note that you ended up um, having to tell your four-year-old daughter when your husband was, was found. And I do want to talk about how important it is to do that honestly. And it sounded like you had some really good guidelines for that. Right, yeah. But it, that must have been so difficult because oh. your your daughter was at an age of just so much unknowing, right? Right, yeah. So luckily um, that day she was away from the, the home and 
and spent the night at my friend's house. But then the next day I did have to tell her. So in the meantime, I had um, people that were reaching out to me and helping me to figure out what I was going to say to her. And one of those was the Dougie Center, the people there. Um, really helpful, and and ultimately they said you just have to be honest with her because if you're not, she's not going to trust what you say is true, and mm-hmm. that'll just all come back around and, and bite you. So, yeah, from the very beginning, I told her he shot himself mm-hmm. in his car, and then, yeah, she had a bunch of very detailed questions that were not easy for me to answer, but I did, um, mm-hmm. you know. I don't. It wasn't good for her, but at least... She, she doesn't have questions. She doesn't question me. Right. Yeah. 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 She she knows that there's somebody always going to tell her the truth about yeah. that. Yeah. But, you know, the the interesting thing about being a suicide loss survivor is that I think when anybody dies, people have a lot of theories about the way in which your loved one lived and how they died. But boy, when it's suicide, they really have sure. a lot of opinions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You grew up in a religious community. So mm-hmm. were, did you suffer a lot of other people's opinions about... You know, not outright. Nobody really said anything offensive, but I would hear things here and there, you know, like, you know, that's the ultimate sin. There's no way he can be going to heaven, you mm. know, things like that. Mm. Not directly to me, but I would, you know, hear somebody, oh, this person said this. And um, so that was really hard. Um, but again, I, you know, after completely feeling devastated and, and disoriented, I still felt that shame. You know, I just mm-hmm. did not. And in fact, um, going to the Dougie Center, they have a, a support group for the parents there. Um, and I related more to some of the spouses whose um, wives and husbands died from cancer or from, you know, right. something like that, because I felt that Scott had a disease, you know, and that's what took his life. It wasn't, that wasn't my Scott who killed himself. Yeah, you yeah. know, these days... When people ask about my late husband, I say he died after a long battle with mental illness. Yeah. And I think if we could start reframing that so that people begin talking about it as, oh, he was suffering from something and he was attempting to try to deal with it and he couldn't deal with it any longer, similar to a disease process like cancer Mm -hmm. or heart disease. Mm -hmm. It claims a lot of people and nobody wants to blame someone for it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting thing that way. I think being a suicide loss survivor is a particularly difficult time because you do have that, the shock. You don't have the answers as to why. You have the financial uh, stress of completely not knowing how you're going to go forward. You are Mm -hmm. six months pregnant, even more stressful. And then you have people's judgment on top of it, which other types of deaths, other types Mm -hmm. of widows don't don't have. Um, Mm -hmm. How did you cope with everything? You know, you kind of went through the same uh, path that I exactly felt. I mean, it was devastation and like really being disoriented and figuring out, okay, how am I going to get through this day every day? Just, you know, getting up out of bed, taking care of the kids. Um, And then the shame and guilt came to play, you know, and that and that sticks around for a long time. And then I found anger because (laughs) for me, at least it was easier to be angry than sad. Mm-hmm. And so for many years I have been angry. Oh, and wow. and a lot of people probably haven't recognized that about me because I don't show it on the outside but on the inside. And you know, and with that said, 
I chose to be angry. It wasn't that I really was angry with him because I had empathy for him and I lived that hell with him. Yeah. And so I understood, but still it was easier to be angry. I'm yeah. so I'm so mm-hmm. glad that you admitted to that because there's so many um, circles where it wouldn't be okay to say that, mm-hmm. where it would just be like, how could you be angry at someone who was mm-hmm. sick? Yeah. But there is this strange component about suicide that it was ultimately one person's choice. At a certain point, they do decide, right? Sure. Yeah. And and I think what you just did there is this ability to have all these complicated emotions. It's mm-hmm. not only that you're sad or that you feel shame. You also feel probably love and of course you feel anger and all of these things. And and that's the difficulty is like how do you make sense of all these complicated feelings that that you have? And we tend to only feel it's appropriate to talk about or even have kind of one set of feelings. And anger is often, especially for women, anger is not one of the ones that yeah. you're supposed to be feeling yeah. in yeah. regards mm-hmm. to this. Mm-hmm. So I or, do. Or in some cases, relief. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. A, of course. Yeah. I, yeah. Have, I have a friend who, uh, in a very different context, she will say, you know, I have a lot of feelings. And I think sometimes she means like, I have this feeling and I have a lot of it. But I think more, <laughs> I think more often it's like, I have a bunch of feelings. Yeah. And if I wrote them down on paper, you would say that some of them are opposites. And mm-hmm. it's as though there's something in our mind that says that that all has to add up and make sense. And I just don't think that's the way we are. Yeah. I think you have like great loss. And sometimes if people have, if, if your loved one has been suffering for a long time, you have this sense of like, like an exhale, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then yeah. there's anger and then there's like empathy yeah. and there's love and there's release and there's fear and I mean, all kinds of things. And I, I'm with yeah. Jenna. I don't, I don't think it ends up being um, useful to try and sort them out and put like, uh, this is what I'm feeling. Right. Those are just words. It's also just particularly complicated because if you notice um, when Tony, I'm going to forget his last name, the chef, and Kate Spade died within the first week. Oh, yeah. um, Bourdain. Bourdain. Mm -hmm. There were so many people that wanted to find the reason why. Okay. They want to excavate into the personal lives of those people and attempt to find out why. And so many times the partner, of course, Mm -hmm. is like to blame. Of course. Because the partner did something that caused them to do this. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I I just didn't do something something to prevent prevent it. it. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And add guilt to the list of right. Right. Mm -hmm. So I will I'll just say the the part that I finally got to, and I don't know if you'll get there, Leslie, or if you're there now, but I actually added like a a sixth component to the stages of grief, which was I had to get to forgiveness, Mm -hmm. both for myself, for the missing a lot of signs and symptoms of a really Mm -hmm. serious illness, Mm -hmm. and also for him that ultimately it was his choice about what he was going to do with his suffering. Mm -hmm. And no matter how many things I tried and attempted, it was ultimately still his choice. Yeah, that's interesting you bring that up because probably just within the past year, I've really, and I've kind of explained it as like, I've just let go. I've stopped holding on to that because for years and years, 
I would still be researching, like trying to figure out mm-hmm. what happened to him. What did mm-hmm. I miss? Mm-hmm. Like I didn't even want an autopsy done on him because I felt like if they found something, then I would know what I missed and that would make things worse for oh, me. Wow. And, um, but I find finally, you know, and, and it's a conversation I have with myself all the time. It's just, I just have to let go. It's like a trust mm-hmm. fall, you know? Yes. Yeah. Um, that's right. That's mm-hmm. a beautiful way to I can't describe hang it. On to it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're, you're doing this really innovative and very cool thing. And I don't want to, to, you know, birth your baby before you're ready. But, <laughs> right. but part of also, um, I think recovering as a suicide loss survivor is deciding how you're going to actually make something out of the suffering. You know, I always mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. this great image of going down to the depths of the ocean and being compressed and mm-hmm. coming back up for air and going, but I, I have this thing, mm-hmm. right. I have this beautiful yeah. thing to share. Yeah. For me, it's always about, um, how much more I value life. Like Mm -hmm. I, because I know that, that people can get that sick and that hopeless and that, and suffer in that way. The fact that I go out and I am in just completely enamored by the spring buds outside Mm -hmm. is part of the reminder to me, like that's what I brought up from the ocean's depth. Mm -hmm. But you're bringing up this other amazing thing of helping other people find access to help. Right. Uh, you know, just from our experience trying to navigate through the mental health system and finding help, um, you know, it was very apparent quickly that it was a bit of a maze and, um, you know, ultimately find our way out. And and I do say that the system in place and trying to find a provider or, or um, you know, professional that can help someone um, failed us. That yeah. system failed us. There wasn't anything, a direct path that we could take, you know, where somebody could help us. So my sister and I have come up with this um, system, which basically simplifies that path to, and you know, access for healthcare. Because, you know, now you think of, you know, well, it's not cheap to get therapy. This is something that's going to be ongoing. And there's, and there's other things outside of therapy as well. Um, and so, you know, we go to our insurance, and, and most insurances now are covering mental health services. And so then we go, we go there, and, it, and that still is becoming, you know, hard to decipher. Okay, well, who, who can deal with what I'm experiencing? And, and, oh, they specialize in this. Well, what does that mean? Oh, let me go Google and see what that means. You know, and so it's, it's very cumbersome and complex, and if you don't, if you're new to the mental health system, you don't know, you know, buzzwords, you don't know what therapies are, you know, it, it feels hopeless. Yeah. And so um, basically, basically through massive collaboration and, and some technology, we're bringing together a program that hopefully will provide an easier path for people to find. Help. You know, J- Jenna and Brian, one of the things that I, I all remember so clearly is about four years after my husband died, I was driving in Bend and I'm going over the road and I, a friend of mine who's a CEO, she runs a company that has like, you know, 12,000 employees. She has, you know, 340 managers. She is like on it. And she said, my husband is suicidal. And last night I was on Google putting in the words, my husband is suicidal. Yeah. And you have a thousand hits of national resources that have nothing to do with your life. Right. You have no language, as, as, as Leslie just pointed out, for what is actually happening. Mm-hmm. 
And unlike a physical break in the leg where you go to the emergency room and then you know you get to see an ortho, it's like there isn't a refined system for this. Have you ever thought about the ways in which we could, or even you guys, are thinking about improving that system, that delivery of health care? Well, I know, like, personally at our clinic, um, we have a very strong mission around trying to help people connect with resources, even if they're not one of the therapists at our clinic. We actually probably spend way more time getting people set up with therapists outside of our clinic than we do getting them set up with folks at our clinic exactly because of that problem. Like I'm a psychologist. I've been doing this for a very long time and I still have had difficulty when there are times in my life when I've wanted to find a therapist for myself navigating that system. I can't even imagine what it's like for people who don't know the acronyms and the lingo and the what to say and what not to say Mm -hmm. and all of this stuff. So I would encourage somebody, don't try and navigate it alone. Mm. Call call a professional, call like a a clinic in your town, Mm -hmm. and hopefully you will find somebody on the other end of the line who says, I'm not your person, but let me tell you who your person Mm, might be. Super cool. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's great. Mm -hmm. Brian, do you have any other, because we're almost out of time, do you have any other suggestions for people who are, if they love someone, especially because what I've noticed more often than not is it tends to be the people around someone who is suffering who says like, I I think this could be a a crisis in the making. Mm Any suggestions for them about how to move forward, even just the mind state that they might adopt in attempting? In attempting to walk with this person? Yeah. I think we've I think we've touched on it most likely, but maybe I can reiterate that I mean suicide is such an incredibly the the prospect of suicide is such an incredibly scary thing that it's easy to identify that as the problem or the difficulty, and when your loved one no longer feels that way, to think that then it's like, okay, good, we're fine. To me, it feels like the thing to do is to try to be as like, jump in where angels fear to tread, Mm. um, and not have that be just like, okay, so you're not going to kill yourself, right? Okay, good. That it is, I want to walk with you in the stuff that got you here. Yeah. And I'm okay seeing you. I'm okay hearing what you feel about and I will walk with you in that. The goal is not for you to be okay like all of us. The goal is for you to be transparent. Mm. And and I'll be with you in this journey and not just me. I will help you find those resources. I will help you search out that that whether whether it's professional support or whatnot, you know. I, it's also, I think, that idea of changing the paradigm where the the strength that we should start valuing is not your six-packs and the abs. It's your ability to have the kind of empathy to sit with someone who's suffering or, or have the kind of bravery to say, I'm not doing well. And that, yeah. means, and that means really the, I don't know if bravery would be the word that I would choose, but although I think it is... Um, to sit with your own distress. Right. Yes. Because right. if somebody that you love is hurting, it's going to hurt. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That would be the piece that I would add to it is to, if, if somebody that you love is hurting, 
the very first thing you're going to have to do is to be able to be with your own suffering and to make space for that or get your own support for that. Mm. Um, and, and I guess one thing I might like to add to the conversation is what I think of as the distinction between somebody who is having suicidal thoughts. Like, that is a really common experience. Mm-hmm. And yet we pretend like people aren't having those thoughts. People keep those thoughts to themselves as if those thoughts are what is dangerous. Mm. Having suicidal thoughts is not what is dangerous. It is being suicidal. It is committing that act that is the danger. So if we could actually just talk about I'm having these thoughts and you know, as a professional, I'll call out my field. I can't tell you how many therapists I hear who say, oh, I don't work with suicidal clients. Oh, yes, you do. Mm-hmm. Yes, you do. Oh. You just have clients yeah. that aren't telling that, you that aren't telling you because mm-hmm. if you wow. have more than three clients you're working with somebody who's having suicidal thoughts wow. mm-hmm. at, at some point in their mm-hmm. life and so whether you're a professional or a loved one like being willing to hear those thoughts from somebody mm-hmm. and then say i want to know like what's underneath your pain because the important part about talking about your pain is because on the flip side of pain is what matters to you. Hmm. We only suffer around the things that matter to us. Mm-hmm. And so if you can have conversations about what somebody is in pain about, it's also a clue to what would make their life worth living. Mm. Oh, so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Leslie, I don't want to um, leave without just saying thank you. I know that this is the first time you've spoken publicly about your late husband's death. And it was just a beautiful, I think, incredible tribute to, to his life as well. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And I want I wanted to just say, I think your business is going to have an amazing place in culture because it does provide yeah. um, that sort of missing link that we're all looking for, you know? Yeah, hoping yeah. for it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This is Beyond Well. I think we're going to be at episode, like, 12 with this one. Wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. Thanks again for coming in. Thanks. Yeah.